Hello, I'm Joshua Groisberg, a history enthusiast. And I'm Jacob Friedman, founder of People's Big News. And this is Gen Zero's Talk Politics. This is where two members of the next generation of American adults talk about what's going on in the world. Since the whole world is on fire, we might as well take a crack at delivering some insightful analysis and maybe some comedy along the way. So we got two stories from the month of August. We got the student loan forgiveness and the FBI's search of Mar-a-Lago in connection to missing intelligence documents. So start off with student loans. Biden recently announced that the administration will forgive $10,000 in student debt for individuals making under $125,000 a year and couples making $250,000 a year with $20,000 forgiven for Pell Grant recipients, uh, students who get federal aid made up of grants that don't have to be repaid, but they also do get student loans as part of their uh, college education. He also extended the pause on, on student loan payments that's been continuing throughout the pandemic for one more time through the end of the year, and is limiting payments on undergraduate loans, just 5% of borrower's income. Right now, the ballpark estimate for what this whole plan might cost is about 500 billion dollars. That's one of the estimates going on right now from the committee for responsible for our budget. But let me just say this right off the bat. This is a highly contentious issue. This is a policy issue. This is not life or death, but this is still a very controversial issue. It should be about the right-wing Republicans. Let's ignore that for right now. And let's just talk about what this all means, because this issue involves a lot of moving parts, higher education, administration decisions, federal and state funding for different types of schools, changes to uh, the federal student loan program, job market and what students choose to study, and eternal debate on the very purpose of college itself and what the purpose of education in this country is. Right. And if I can share my thoughts on this, I think that's a pretty good recap of what the Biden administration is planning to do. First of all, I don't think that this limited loan forgiveness put forward by the Biden administration, it won't fix that much bigger issue that's been happening in the United States for decades, which is college tuition rates have significantly increased over the last uh, 40 years. So I can cite some I can cite some statistics here. According to Georgetown University, college tuition for uh, room and board and tuition, it's gone up 169% between 1980 and 2020, and wages have not gone up that fast, meaning tuition for many families is becoming more expensive and therefore more inaccessible. And that presents a larger societal problem because a more educated public means that it has to have better access to education. And when we're putting more education behind a a much larger paywall, it becomes a lot harder to educate more and more Americans. And so really forgiving a certain amount, $10,000, it won't fix that issue at all. It's kind of putting a bandage, a very small bandage on a very large wound. This is definitely intended to prop up President Biden out of the midterm elections in November to, you know, kind of show his voters to show the American public that, you know, the Biden administration is capable of doing something about it. But will the voters, will young voters actually show up? Will young voters take this as what they want? You know, a lot of young voters have been clamoring for this. Will they actually say, okay, thank you. Here's my vote. Like they're going to say this this president, this president, these candidates are actually going along with my thing, going along with my policy position. Like they're not going to, I don't don't trust young voters to do that. I agree. I I don't think it'll really substantially change much. I don't think I mean, sure, it's, it's, you know, it's definitely a step in the direction of what many young people want, but it's really nothing too substantial, in my opinion. So I don't think that this will actually increase midterm turnout among young voters in November. I'm not really sure the move was entirely worth it. I don't think it's as consequential. And I don't think it really solves that issue that I mentioned. 
but I, I'm curious what your thoughts about are, are about this, Jacob. I mean, I'm I'm in the same position as you are. I I would actually say it's even worse. I think it's a complete step backward. I mean, let's forget let's forget Nina Turner and these other spam accounts basically subtweeting the White House account saying cancel student debt. A lot of people in good faith are saying we should cancel student debt in one in some way or another. Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren, dude, these are smart people. Like this is not this is not an issue where this is a small minority, a really, really, really small minority don't know what they're talking about. And a lot of you listening, you probably are support of this issue. This is not meant to attack anyone. This is only our opinion. Hear us out for a second. So there's three points here. There's the policy itself. There's the politics around it. There's the legal aspect to it. One of the big things is that this decision, according to the CRFB, the committee I mentioned earlier, and left-wing think tanks like the Progressive Policy Institute and Obama economic advisors like Larry Summers have all said that this is going to hide inflation. This is actually pretty bad at timing, considering where we are right now in the economy. Although inflation is going to be going down, we're disinflation, but the inflation rate is going to be, we're not going to be deflation where the price, where, you know, prices are going to be plummeting. We're going to go back to the normal target of like 2 or 3%. Now, this is bad timing for doing this because Mark Goldwyn of CRFB and Jason Furman have said that there's a very good chance that the cancellation of student debt would cancel out the disinflationary effects of the Inflation Reduction Act. That, that, that is $500 billion infusion of cash into people's pockets and allowing them to cancel $10,000 off the student loans, it would, it would drive up consumption, it would drive up demand, it would harm the general state of prices. This also has political implications too, because if uh, because even though Biden might be doing this as a way of propping him up for the midterms, it might actually harm him because inflation is already a very big concern for the Biden administration in the midterms. And if he makes it worse by canceling the student loan, I mean, if, if you are right, if the prediction is right, and it ends up uh, actually increasing inflation, then it'll only help Republicans and hurt Democrats even more. But let's face facts here. The vast majority of this country does not go to college. They do not have a college degree. It's not like 40 percent. It's like, yeah, 30, 40 percent. And a lot of what is, said, what is being said by, well, well, Republicans is that, you know, this is a transfer of wealth from, you know, people didn't go to college, people did go to college. That's the one point they have. And considering that a lot of the debt, graduate school student debt, a lot of these people, a lot of the people who take out student debt are going to be able to pay it off. I'm not saying student debt is a good thing. Yes, is $1.6 trillion, $1.7 trillion of collective student debt in this country. Shaving off $10,000 per person is not a long-term solution. It does help some people now, putting a band-aid in an open wound. It's actually going to make things worse overall for the general economy. It's not going to help the people, even people who are supposed to help as much, considering inflation. Well, let's move on to the political aspect for a second. So, like you said, Joshua, there's the fact that this is a midterm play, that you know this is about the youth voters. And I really hope I'm wrong that youth voters are going to look at this and say, look, this is something that the president did that I want to do. But a lot of what's going on now is that a lot of the candidates, in the midterm candidates, down, down the ballot in Congress and state legislatures and whatnot, are coming out against this decision. Catherine Cortez Masto, even, even some Democrats like Jake Ockencross, my representative here in Massachusetts, he's running out of post. I think the polls showed it was less than 50% of people actually support this type of action. I mean, and it's a bad move. Like, I mean, you know, you can, if the party doesn't rally behind the president on this issue, then it's only going to once again hurt him in the midterms. 
because then you're going to have Democrat, Democratic candidates go all in all different directions. I mean, obviously, some are going to support this. Some are not going to support it, like you mentioned, like our congressman should gotcha sauce. But um, even then, I, I agree, this is a bad political move. And the second problem is a much deeper problem I have with this. But we talked before about the political toxicity cycle, which basically says that as the public is more polarized, they vote on a Congress that can't get anything done. So the president increases executive power with a lot of executive orders and whatnot that, you know, reconstructs and balances, creates flip-flopping policy that, that solely depend on the president because Congress can't do anything. And that leads to an electorate that's more polarized, which leads to a, a do-nothing Congress, which is the cycle. You know, this has been an issue that has been called out for each president for years now. Obama with DACA, Trump for, well, a ton of things. And Biden for this. And here's the thing. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi herself has said that she does not believe the president can cancel student debt. You know, Lottery, that it has to be done with an act of Congress. A lot of the excuses that, the pre- that these presidents have done for doing what they've done is that Congress hasn't done anything. Well, I'm just going to do what they can't do. If you're against this, if you're against if you're against what Trump has done with a lot of executive orders and with the border wall, what he did, trying to move the money around in defense, and what Biden is doing now with student loans or with Obama DACA, don't take your anchor out of the other party. Focus on Congress. Why aren't we having more time and resources dedicated to making Congress actually function? I've been calling for multi-member districts for a while now as a way to get Congress to act more in cooperation with each other to get legislation moving, to get House members to actually introduce and, and pass legislation. And there are people talking about filibuster reform, filibuster elimination, restoration, whatever. But we haven't really had a movement on solutions that can actually work. And there aren't minor political firestorm, like multi-member districts or expanding the House or anything like that. I hope that's something like getting Congress less dysfunctional will be, you know, put more into mainstream. It would be nice. But unfortunately, with this particular issue of college, of college tuition reform or student loan forgiveness, there hasn't been a lot of activity to reform the status quo. And I mean, like you mentioned, a lot of Democrats opposed the measure President Biden has put forward. And you can forget about any Republican supporting this measure whatsoever. I can't imagine any Republican in the Senate or maybe even in the House who would support such a measure of student loan forgiveness or even any kind of reform. So while I understand that obviously presidents making executive decisions, there are issues of legality and all and all the such. You know, there is no movement in Congress on this, like you mentioned. So I think Biden's in a very rare dilemma. And frankly, if, if I, I would support him maybe making some exec taking some executive action on student loan reform or making reforms that would make college tuition a lot more affordable. So and now we turn back to the legal aspect of this. The legal rationale for the administration's decision is in the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003. What that act does is that it allows the Secretary of Education to cancel student loans on the basis of national emergencies, with the Biden administration's emergency being the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's the thing though. This professor from Fordham Law School, Judge Sugarman, he put out a great tweet that basically said, the Supreme Court and other courts, they struck down previous executive actions from the administration based on the pandemic, like vaccine mandates and eviction moratorium. So something like as as sweeping as a student loan forgiveness probably won't cut it. It probably won't pass muster in the courts. So this policy probably won't won't even have the desired economic effect that, you know, the the CRFB predicts. But 
the political um, aspects are still going to be there. I'm suspecting that Biden's actually going to be okay with this if this thing gets struck down. Because this, because like you said, Joshua, this seems more like a pure political move and not a policy move. By my respect, fussy, but I'm like 99% sure that in the 2020 primaries, Biden didn't really have a lot of what a lot of progressives and a lot of uh, Bernie supporters wanted for student relief. I'm pretty sure his platform did not cool a lot about a lot about that in there. I agree with Joshua. I think this is very much Biden just, you know, a, 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 like a Hail Mary to get youth voters, the last, you know, youth voters to come out before, you know, election season really starts. And so they can say, if it gets struck down, he can say, oh, you know, don't blame me, blame the courts. This is still bad for, you know, executive action, like, like we just talked about with public policy, because we still haven't really even addressed the main root of the problem with which college loans. Um, Joshua, if you're Joe Biden and you're in the White House with the midterms coming up, you know, if this gets struck down, was there any, do you think he should do something? If you, and if you do, would you have anything in mind? Look, admittedly, I don't know. I can say that I myself unfortunately understand what my own generation would possibly would possibly you know see as something worth voting for in the elections i mean there's already been a lot of bad things that are probably going to encourage younger voters i think roe v wade being overturned for one even though that's an issue of the court and not with you know our political you know not with congress or the president um another is you know the school shooting in uvalde texas and the subsequent gun reform that occurred as a result of that i think there are some things that you know, affect all Americans. But I think particularly with heavy consumption of media nowadays, I think young people will definitely, you know, think of those issues when they come to vote. And I I, I read of a recent poll, I can't uh, remember what the poll was, but engagement with the midterms among Americans is like higher than 50%, whereas in previous midterm elections, it was closer to 37%. So I think we could already imagine that there'll be a lot more turnout. I'm sure a lot of that turnout will be from young voters. But I, I must admit, you know, I may while I may be, you know, calling Biden out here and saying that his move wasn't the right one, he's in a tough political situation. And with all the precedent of, you know, the party in charge of losing votes and losing House seats and Senate seats, he's definitely against the clock to keep his party in control in the, you know, in the government. But um, I really don't know what Biden would do. Do you, do you have any ideas? I mean, if this gets struck down for the midterms, I probably would. I mean, if I were him, I'd probably start working on you know, shifting funds to um, to something like vocational schools to try and do like a smaller solutions. You can't do a full sweep solution without a fact of Congress. You just you just can't. But considering that the administration previously canceled student loans for uh, for-profit schools, that was a whole thing with the Obama administration that these for-profit schools like ITT Tech defraud their students and stuck them with the loans. And so the federal government said, okay, we're going to, we're going to take care of that for you. You know, we got, you got to fraud. It's not your fault. Working on increasing community college funding, maybe even think about free community college, even though I'm not for that. I mean, that could be something less inflationary and you know, less of a sticking point. There also could be, you know, policy changes in terms of federal funding for schools because a lot of schools get federal funding and that, and you know, the problem with a lot of schools is that they spend so much money on administration costs that they jack up the prices. They jack up what they, what they charge students. The president and the president could use bully pulpit or it could go it could try to you know work a deal in congress you know you could get it is even if it doesn't get done you can at least go to congress and say you know can't if the schools if state schools and whatnot because a lot of state schools still get federal funding if they don't bring out prices if they don't make changes you know federal funding is going to be pulled or federal funding can be you know limited in some way 
But I, again, I, again, this is, I'm just spitballing here. I don't know the full legal implications. I'm not an education policy blog, but there seems to be better options that Biden has at, the ta- at his disposal, and he didn't take them. And so the second story is the Trump is the FBI's search of former President Trump's home at the Monaco Resort. As you probably heard, the search has been in connection with 700 missing documents that Trump has allegedly taken from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. And the reason why this is big is because those documents are connected to his time as president. And there are laws that state you cannot take these documents without permission from the National Archives and you have to come to the presidential library because it used to be that the president, a lot of things he did in office were his personal property, all his papers. And so we actually lost a lot of those papers to history because you know we didn't have this formal norm uh, and rules about keeping records of what presidents did. But now we do, and President Trump has allegedly violated those. For 18 months, because it's a former president and not some low-level Intel employee, the National Archives and Justice Department have, have asked him politely a bunch of times and cooperated with lawyers a bunch of times to give him every opportunity to return all the documents he took. And he didn't. And so the DOJ did the proper thing by negotiating with Trump's lawyers and getting approval from a judge to search the premises of Mar-a-Lago. And so while we wait for this guy to get indicted, finally, we're recording this just mere hours after the affidavit that the Justice Department is supposed to uh, give to the judge and say, you know, this is what, you know, this is part of our reasoning. This is part of why we're doing this in addition to the warrant, the search warrant. And so we see this back and forth between Justice Department and Trump and his lawyers over what is happening. And we see that Trump is in full panic mode. He's, yell- he's basically yelling about a witch hunt. He's blaming all the stops. He's blaming Obama. He's blaming Hillary. He's back attacking the judge. He's sicking his followers into shutting down the judge's uh, temple. He sent a letter to Garland basically saying, you know, you know, I love to lower the temperature. He can't stop incriminating himself. This man acts like a mobster. He wants yeah. to be a king. He wants to say, I'm above all of this nonsense. I can do whatever I want. I can take documents. I can do whatever I want. Article two, yeah, and, excuse me, whatever I want. Yeah, right. And, you know, obviously a raid on a former president's home, that's unprecedented. A, a lot of Trump and a lot of his allies are kind of hiding behind the fact that it's unprecedented to basically say, well, how, how are you able to go so far? I mean, you know, you're talking about a former president here. But as Jacob, you mentioned, it's very well warranted. The, I think the big question is, I don't want to speculate too much about this because I don't want to say anything that might be too off kilter. But why would Trump want to keep all these documents with him in his private residence? I mean, these some of these documents are really sensitive and pertain to issues of national security. Sorry, like we know earlier to nuclear secrets, to intelligence, to, like I said, issues of national security. And of course, you know, Trump, uh, Trump's allies have rushed to defend him. And, you know, they've claimed that the FBI was conducting a partisan war against Trump. The only problem is the head of the FBI. He was actually a Trump nominee who was nominated in 2017. I believe his name is Christopher Ray, And, you know, like I mentioned, I'm also frustrated with this. I mean, Trump does really believe he's a king because he believes he's above the law because he believes that as former president, he is really above the law. He's not. So the question is, how much longer can Trump avoid legal repercussions? You know, problems keep mounting for him. But the big problem is, is that, you know, not even Nixon was this bad, right? Well, Nixon the didn't violate the a- Espionage Act. Right. So Nixon's I mean, not even that bad. So the problem with Trump is he's able to hide behind the lack of president in possibly prosecuting a former president. Now, I think a lot of members of the DOJ and possibly Attorney General Merrick Garland 
I think they're worried about taking steps. I think they're being very cautious because they know that there'd be huge political consequences because Trump's base is very much devoted to him. When someone takes documents that are supposed to be secret, that are supposed to be, or hell, if someone takes documents that are not supposed to be taken out, period, even if they're not classified, even if they're declassified, you can't take them out of your residence. You can't take, you can't bring your work home with you if you work at the FBI. Reality winner, I think that's where her name was, I think she took a single like document and she got five years in prison. Like this is not something that the federal government jokes around with. And just because Donald Trump was basically the, you know, the head of some like criminal enterprise masquerading as a real estate firm, you know, and did whatever he wanted because he was the head. He was like, it was a family business. It doesn't mean he can treat the White House like that. It doesn't mean he can treat our people's house like that. The affidavit has confirmed that was what was in there wasn't just run-the-mill letters to a French president. It was something to do with the FISA courts, right? some of the secret, most secret courts in the country that relate to foreign surveillance. It, it's related to human intelligence, possibly espionage, like actual spies. This is the president who decided, who decided to take this for whatever purpose, guys, to sell them, to barter with them, to, 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 to keep them, to cover up something. One of the original reasons Justice Department got in the tail about this is because one of the things back and forth between them and the lawyers for Trump was that these documents were not kept secret. They were not in a secret and secure place in Mar-a-Lago. Like there was a whole thing about a lock and the people were going in and out of that room where the documents were stored day in and day out. Trump and his, and his people are not serious. They're not serious about national security. They're not serious about the jobs they took. They're not serious about the, pub, the public service. If it's either to get rich or cover up, I don't care. We shouldn't care what they want to do with these documents because these people fundamentally don't care. They want to be treated like kings. They want to be this, you know, oligarchy type, non-democratic, unaccountable system where they can be above the law. Like you said, Josh, no one and no one can touch them, not just department, not the courts, not Congress, not anyone. I don't think Attorney General Maragallon has to hesitate. I understand the position he's in. It's very hard when you're in an unprecedented situation where a former president, like you said, is just going around, you know, above the law, completely ignoring requests from the DOJ and such. But I don't think he should hesitate to do what's right. And I, you know, but obviously I am concerned that if you hypothetically indict Trump, you start prosecuting him, you possibly put him in jail, then I think a large portion of his voter base would get enraged and you could see violence as a result of this i mean you know i'm thinking of january 6 right you know with the big election of the big lie he even as a former president he has so much power over a lot of people he's such a big influence people really look up to him that if you hypothetically put this guy in jail for you know all the bad things he's done you could actually see like you know violence and i'm really worried about that personally Right, and we did see that with the with the person who shot up the FBI building in, I think, Cincinnati. But that's the thing, though. This is why you can't vote Republican Party. Voting for the Republican Party, voting for any, a lot of these candidates who say, oh, you know, I don't like January 6th, but, you know, look at what Trump did on this, this, and this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we agree with Trump on tax reform, whatever. Fundamentally, these people do not care about governance. They don't care about the rule of law. They don't care about what makes the system work. Those voters who some are still saying that we should, you know, we should just reach out to them. We still need to reach out to them. They don't want to be reached out to. They don't want to be in a system, a marketplace of ideas. They don't want to be in a democracy. Remember, these countless executive orders 
from the Trump administration attempting to work around Congress. The use of the executive branch to obstruct Congress in the legal system, think the Ukraine impeachment scandal. And if anyone read that giant Atlantic piece about the child separation policy at the border, it was basically a steamrolling of normal and important bureaucratic norms and processes that ensure that policies are not haphazardly thrown out there and people don't get hurt. These voters and these candidates and these elected officials in the Republican Party in the conservative, not even conservative anymore, apparatus, don't care about the fundamentals anymore. They just want this like neo, neo-monarchy, honestly. I'm not sure how neo-monarchy it is. I certainly, it certainly lends more towards authoritarianism because, of, you know, the Republican Party is giving Trump like too many passes on a bunch of illegal things he's done, including this, you know, by saying, oh, the FBI is crooked, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Warren Boebert putting on uh, truth social, defund the FBI, which is the greatest irony I've ever seen. You're right. It's I, I'm not sure I'd call it neo-monarchical because it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't seem as it doesn't seem organized enough for that, but it certainly leans towards more towards authoritarianism, where you give one very influential person a pass on a lot of legal rules. That's why we shouldn't expect the Gilead from Hamid's Tale. That's why we shouldn't be expecting civil war. The base of Trumpism, the, the reason why people are, are still running on the 2020 election was stolen is not because there's this coherent ideology. It's not because there's, there's this real coherent, uh, you know, line. They, they're bored. They, they don't want to think about the in and outs of policy, public policy. They don't want to think about the in and outs of why, God, why we have a 250-year-old system you know, 200-something-year-old constitution. They don't want to think about the nuances. They, just, they want their free Wi-Fi. They want their, you know, they want the comforts of, you know, being in a in a first-world country without any of the responsibilities of being citizens. And they can skirt that by just, you know, shooting up FBI offices or attacking the Capitol or running on, you know, hacking voting machines. And that's why we need to vote these people out as much as possible. I agree, because, I mean, imagine if the DOJ was headed by, I don't know, somebody like Jeff Sessions or somebody by Bill Barr instead of Mary Or Barr. Jeffrey Clark. You, or Jeffrey Clark. I mean, really, you know, it's kind of a good thing that we have somebody like Merrick Garland in charge of the DOJ as attorney general, because otherwise, I mean, if it was a Republican president in charge, if it was DeSantis or anybody else, then this would never have happened, and Trump would have been a lot more brazen as a result. So really, it just goes to show how fra- how fragile of a position we are in. If it wasn't for a Democratic president, a Democratic, you know, administration uh, putting in competent law-respecting people in these positions, then, you know, it could all fall apart. So it just goes to show how fragile our system currently is. Right. And that, that's why my message to everyone listening is that if you haven't signed, if you haven't registered to vote, go register to vote. If you're not voting in the primaries... You know, if you're able to vote in the primaries at all, vote in the primaries. If the environment is still coming up. And if you're going to vote now, planning not to vote in general election, I hope this will help convince you that voting general election is pretty damn important, no matter where you are. Because if you're living in a gerrymandered state, you can, you can vote in meaningful opposition. Even DeSantis, who's basically becoming Orban, you know, the, Ford, the Fordian Orban, he has- uh, I wouldn't out. compare him to Orban. Okay, wristband got would differ, but okay, fine, fine. Even but even DeSantis hasn't ruled out the hasn't basically closed off the opposition to Florida. Like there's still good things happening for it. Like the first Gen Z congressman, basically, because he won his Democratic primary in that that district overwhelmingly works for the Democrats. Like that's still like that's still an accomplishment. Like there's still a lot of good things to be done. And oh, oh, remember, look at Georgia. 
we wouldn't have the gun law, we wouldn't have the IRA if it weren't for the two races in Georgia. And that was because people, even though it was a red state before, the people, the youth voters went out and they did something. They registered and they voted. And that, and that made a difference. I know this is all, this sounds like I'm doing good, but don't get discouraged. Don't worry about the threats of violence. And even though we might be heading towards our version of the troubles, we're not going to complace them with anything. And that concludes this episode of Gen Zero's Talk Politics. Be sure to join our Discord server, follow us on Instagram at Gen Zero's Talk Politics, and on Twitter at Gen Zero's Talk Poly with an I, and add or email us to ask your burning questions. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you next time. <laughs>